how we can actually get benefit from these concepts is by copying the things we find in nature that make organisms adaptable, like duplicating body segments or having some kind of symmetry, bilateral symmetry, a radial symmetry. Those are all fertile ground for adaptation. And those are discrete attributes of the system that we can talk about and turn into design patterns. But what are they, right? You'd have to go out there and catalog them and then look at the evolutionary history of that creature and and see what they're good for. Much like we've taken neural networks, mimicking how neurons work, and we've, over a long period of time, figured out what they're good for. That's what I'm excited about. From Seven CTOs, my name is Etienne De Bruyne, and you're in the CTO studio. Today we continue our conversation on evolutionary biology and how it relates to our software development processes. Specifically, we look at degeneracy and its relationship to redundancy. This conversation is part two, so if you missed part one, head back to last week and we'll see you back right here. I want to bring in this concept Aaron, that you introduced in one of your talks around, I think it was around the fingers, and I'm going to butcher this, but the idea was that in evolution, we have all this time and permutations and options to try out. The universe tries out all these options, and over millions of years, we happen to land on a solution where a panda has X number of fingers or, you know, whatever it has in it. And we sort of negate that that took a long time and many failed attempts, i.e. a lot of waste to actually get to the most optimal setup. And so I often think about currently optimal setup. (laughs) <laughs> yes, we're simply have a glimpse into the evolving state, right? So I often think that the our quest for perfection, right now I keep imagining, you know, SpaceX's sort of rounded curves of beautiful rockets, clearly optimized for shooting up into space with the least amount of resistance, right? So I wonder if our constant quest for rounded curves and perfection and shiny objects is partly because we have to deal with you know limited time, limited resources, and so we have this illusion. And we're working inside of a binary system, which is really just on and off. And so our code or whatever you're writing is really just evolved states of ones and zeros, right? So the premise is wrong. Like it's the system is either on or it's off. So there's less, like two states and the amount of code you write, the number of problems you solve, the way it shines on your app, these are just all compounded upon a system that is either on or off. So when we talk about adaptability and we talk about the ability to create systems that can adjust, I just think we're dead on arrival, right? We have a couple years. We have a limited number of people. We're playing inside of a grain of sand in the Sahara Desert. And then as soon as you realize there's a second grain, you're dead. <laughs> so the example you're talking about is the, the panda has a thumb, but it's not a thumb. It's not in the same sense that 
we have a thumb. It's actually, it's a bone spur. That's like a little piece of the bone on the side of their wrist grew longer and they can barely grip things with it because it doesn't really have the same dexterity as ours. But because of that, they preserve some of their ability to run. And so it's sort of like this poor adaptation that's just barely good enough to work. And that's good for their adaptation in their environments. One of the hardest things I've struggled about since I've come up with this, like you mentioned the SpaceX thing. And there's like, really, when you get into like NASA level engineering, it seems silly. A lot of the things I've said in this conversation today seem silly in that context. Like, oh yeah, you should have things be messy. And like, we want some hair on our code and we want things to be poorly tuned. And you talk to a NASA engineer who's like trying to make sure the rocket doesn't blow up. And like the precision of the amount of the ingredients in the rocket engine is so finely tuned. And if it's off by anything, the rocket's going to blow up. It's not going to work. All of this just sounds like nonsense. That how do you reconcile that? When do you know that poor adaptation is a good idea? When do you know that like avoiding perfection is a good idea? And the only way I have been able to resolve it is to think in terms of scale and scope. So like the smaller something is, the smaller a piece of the system you're talking about, the more okay it is to try to make it perfectly optimized. So like when you're talking about the silicon in your chip and like the design of your processor, like precision really matters there. When you're talking about the implementation of a particular sorting algorithm inside one part of your code, it probably matters there. But as soon as you zoom out to like levels of architecture about whether we're using a queue or whether we're using a fan out algorithm or whether we're designing our team around training junior engineers or trying to only hire senior engineers, that's where things start to break down. When you get to the level of systems like that, complexity starts to make it so that you are not powerful enough to know the right answer and you're not enough of a fortune teller to know what's going to be the right for tomorrow. And so the more humble you need to get, the more tolerant of inefficiency you need to get, all those things start to apply at different scales. And I think the smaller something is, the more you can think in SpaceX terms, the larger it is and the more interconnected it is, the more you have to throw away that kind of thinking. I don't know if I'm right, but that's the only pattern I see emerging. Scott mentioned earlier, he was talking about homeobox. Homeobox is a set of genes that's incredibly fundamental. It determines uh, left-right asymmetry and basically limb branching. If you have a error in your homeobox genes, like no limbs develop, you don't end up with a spinal cord, things like that. And these evolutionarily, these genes are incredibly old, like they're basically everywhere because they are key building blocks. And so in evolution, some things are preserved through a line, like there's things that stick around and are there everywhere. Like if you look at developmentally, uh, so there's this notion in developmental biology of recapitulation. Because if you look at a splitting embryo early on, anything even like vaguely mammalian looks the same. Humans, for the first part of their embryonic development period, have a tail, and then the tail goes away. 
Like, why would we spend the time, like the inefficiency to have a system that develops a tail and then gets rid of it, you know, embryonically, like that makes no sense whatsoever. But it's because like evolution already made tails. It was a lot easier to just like keep those things around and then like modify them later in the uh, system. It was less energetic, required fewer alterations. And so when I said easier, it's not like we designed it sort of easier, but evolutionarily, how many spaces, how much change needed to get applied to the system in order to have it never develop in the first place would be much greater than to let it kind of develop, but then pair it back because it was a fitness disadvantage in like humans. So trying to understand those things, the bits that we keep around and that are fundamental building blocks because they're applicable in so many places and operate like critical pieces, I think are kind of what Aaron's getting at, those very small units. One of my favorite bits is the library that does matrix mathematics. It was developed originally in Fortran. I don't remember off the top of my head what the library is called, but it is incredibly optimized and it's used everywhere. Like that same Fortran library is ported into C. Everything you see, if you do anything with matrix multiplication or just matrix operations, it uses the same library. And that's because all the operations that can happen on matrices are covered. Like it's a known problem space. It's a known solution space. A bunch of people have worked to make highly optimized versions of that because they know it. matrix calculations are unlikely to change anytime soon in our life. So that's an area where you really can dig in and completely tune because that's going to have a lot of stability through all the code. You can have high degree of confidence that this will keep getting needed in the same or almost exactly the same sort of way. And if you were to break that piece, like if that library was to get broken, the widespread problems, like the fitness problems it would cause would be enormous. So thinking about those pieces, can we have a piece that we confidently can say is going to stay at a local maxima or even at a global maxima? This is as high as this system will go. It's like finely tuned and we have confidence that it'll stay that way, that it will have stability about it. And that's a key sort of piece. And I think that if we think about things that way and we, as Aaron was saying, kind of get over ourselves a little bit and say, like, what is our confidence that we genuinely know that this thing is unlikely to change? You know, the closest I've got in some of my systems are like some of like the user and authorization systems. Those typically like there's some solved problems. Like at this point, you don't want to write your own password management system. It's a solved problem. We know the right things to do. That should not be a piece we just willy-nilly write ourselves and try a bunch of different things. Like we understand that problem well. Instead, we should use the conserved pieces that we can just bring along because we know they work. We know exactly what they're going to do. We can plug them into a system and then focus our evolvability, our adaptability to the questions that we don't have that kind of certainty on, that we don't understand the 
stability of the fitness landscape around that we know are going to be subject to change. And I think that can help guide architectural decisions. But then you also need to match it with the people side. And I fantasize right now about this weekly meeting that the CTO, someone leads that asks sort of these questions that that just snaps everybody out of the rabbit holes they're down, over-optimizing, over-delivering, speed, and to be able to facilitate these, what are the laws of our universe and how is that impacting our system? And let's dream, let's throw it on the whiteboard, let's bring outside people. Like, that's my fantasy. Is it possible to sort of keep people thinking in broader fuzzy terms by having and facilitating that type of conversation? Or do you need to be so far outside of the box that you really can't do it with people inside the system? You've got to bring people from outside the system to help answer some of those questions that Judah just posed. The books I've been reading lately talk a lot about energy, like conservation of energy. There's a lot of places that's like counterintuitive, like the tail example you're talking about. It's easier to leave the tail there than to use energy to figure out a way to remove it in the process. To Etienne's question, I think we sort of under-evaluate how much energy things take. Like a lot of times it's easier to copy and paste code as opposed to trying to find a way to libraryify it. Because we sort of like look at that and we look at it and we think it's inefficient, but it's like takes very little energy to copy some code and move it somewhere else. And if you only have two copies of it, it's fairly easy to go, ah, you can change one line there and change one line there. It's not a big deal. But I think to Etienne's question about how do we avoid getting stuck in these rabbit holes, I think the thing I've learned the most in managing teams the last couple of years is to leave lots of slack. Like, if you are constantly trying to work at like getting eight out eight maximally productive hours out of every day and you're like trying to push everybody to do their very best constantly and you're not leaving room for like regeneration and play and like just goofing around at work, you're not going to have the energy to like think of these other ideas. And so I think that's kind of the answer for me is to like, leave slack to leave room for having the energy to think about and try different things. Like my instinct isn't you want to bring in innovation team to help you think up big ideas. You just need to do a better job of leaving yourself some capacity so that you have the energy to think about these changes. Like, you know, think about how you're conserving your energy and how, you know, your energy of your team is best applied. And it's generally not best applied by using it all, all the time. I think that at the organizational level, which in a lot of ways I'm more interested in than at the code level, but Conway's law, they're going to end up mirroring one another, is evolution is very much a bottom-up operation. So Darwin's original formulation of evolution is descent with modification and differential survival. And so there are three pieces there. One is descent, that most of what we have, if you look at a current system, the next iteration of the system is going to largely share the same sort of pieces. But it's not going to be an exact copy. There will be changes in it. Things, elements will be different. And then with differential survival, 
means that some of those changes will be much better suited. They will be more fit to the environment. Some will be maladaptive. They will be much less fit. And then a lot of the changes will just be neutral. It'll be neither here nor there. They just are. And then you end up with the differential survival, which helps then influence, okay, now we're going to iterate again with the fitness test applied and you know change it. It's generating that modification and then the culling is generating the complexity. That is what Deming's called the generative organizational principles and such. We talk about, especially in DevOps, you know, philosophy, wanting to have these generative cultures and that we want to have cross-functional autonomous teams that are purpose-driven and have more autonomy within their area and more responsibility and accountability within their area. And these are attempts to build very much the same sort of systems. And where I think that we miss things often, and kind of what you're getting at, Etienne, is that we're missing the differential you know, survival. From one hand, we've got this habit of looking at the org chart and saying, okay, control flows down, even though we mostly want it to flow the other way and such. And so we are preemptively trying to tell the leaf nodes in the org tree, like what to do and such. And it's hard to give up that sense of control. But then if we really do put control down there and autonomy and start laying it up, then we fear entropy. Like this team is going off this direction, this team is going off this direction, and then we fear this like chaos that is as a result. The way that evolution and complex systems deal with that is by having those culling mechanisms. What are the feedback mechanisms that reduce some of the entropy that say, okay, yes, this is heading in the direction that like, works really well for where we're currently experiencing where we're headed. This does not. And we're typically not good at providing that feedback mechanism down in there that ends up reducing that entropy in the overall system. And I think that's where, when we're trying to create these generative cultures and these cross-functional autonomous teams, that as leaders, that's where we fall down. We're comfortable down in the details, but we're not comfortable setting fitness standards and being really clear about the evaluative systems. And that's where I think as leaders, we really need to get, and it's hard, and because we have to constantly think about what should be the fitness criteria. In some ecosystems, the fitness criteria is too rigid, like things just die too quick. They don't evolve you know, very well. In some systems, they're very loose and you end up with all this incredible diversity, but it's not very resilient when conditions really do change. So thinking about the conditions that you're in and the conditions you're expecting to be in and how do you match your fitness standards and that sieve to the ideas while still allowing for all the independent exploration. Because I think in a good generative culture, the complexity will naturally evolve if you let it, if you get the right people in there and give them that freedom, let them have crosstalk, you know, all those sorts of things, they'll generate the complexity. But it also then needs to be in a system that has those feedback mechanisms to then reduce the entropy that's as a result. Yeah. You guys have talked about this in the context of like organizational design and team management, which is not something that I've considered, right? 
So that's an interesting idea. But what interests me so much about this sort of idea of applying concepts from evolution to software development is evolutionary developmental biology. I had never heard of this concept before until I read this book by Sean B. Carroll called Endless Forms Most Beautiful, where it walks the layman, the amateur, through you know, what scientists know about how embryos develop over time. We were talking about the tails that come out and get reabsorbed and sometimes gills that appear and vanish. And what I took away from this as a software engineer is that some organisms have a body plan or a way of developing that is very modular. And because it's modular, because it can tolerate redundancy, it has a better ability to adapt, right? Like having multiple body segments creates some degrees of freedom there that you can adapt the body segment to do something else at a later date when you didn't even know what the problem was beforehand. So certain designs, and I hate to use that word design when I'm talking about evolution, right? But I think we all know what I mean here. It's just like certain ways of being or certain arrangements of parts are better at adapting or have certain characteristics that make them easier to cope with unpredictable changes over time. Like having multiple body segments I mentioned, but there you can pick out a million different examples. And then so when we look at it in nature, we have millions of species, but it's not like we have millions of species that come from radically different lineages. We have millions of species and the number of species is dominated by certain, like, for a lack of a better word, fundamental designs. Like we have animals that have these body segments and have like bilateral symmetry. I think that these are attributes of those systems that deliberately create freedom for adaptation. So what I'm excited about these concepts, and I'm, you know, I'm really looking forward to one day reading Aaron's book, is that there could be something like design patterns, right? So we all know about the Gang of Fours design patterns book where, you know, they talked about like concepts that you can apply to your software to make them like cope with certain conditions, right? Why can we not have design patterns or software that build into them the attribute that they're more easily able to adapt? So what is the software version of body segments? What is the software version of bilateral symmetry? We can discover those things and build them into our architectures from the beginning and have like a defined way of adding this capacity to adapt to our software. So that's kind of the direction my mind immediately goes in when I think about degeneracy and adaptation is that this could be simulated deliberately by humans who don't have millions of years and evolution's infinite ability to examine the system down from the atoms to the size of the universe and still be able to get some of that value. We'll be back. And we're back. You know, in the end, it's all beetles. About 25% of all species are beetles. Yeah, actually, there's a famous evolutionary biologist named E.O. Wilson, who 
literally wrote the book on ants and founded the field of sociobiology. He was in a discussion one time and people were talking about how man was made in the image of God and such. And he quipped, God must have an inordinate fondness for beetles. Because, you know, eventually it's like everything uh, ends up being beetles. Uh, There's also actually, you know, one of the things I think about with those bits is as much as we talk about preserved characteristics and like homeobox genes that are passed along virtually identical for, you know, long periods of time, evolution works on a functional level. Like when we think about fitness, something either works or it doesn't. It's not about the particular details of what makes it up. It's about the function that it performs. My kid is fascinated by the notion that all of these species independently keep evolving into crab-like forms. And it's not that they are all crabs and they're not coming from the same evolutionary tree. It's that functionally, crab-like forms have a lot of advantages in a lot of ecological systems and such. So does it have to be, come from the same you know, fundamental system? No. We can have co-evolution and we can have functional evolution that ends up with very similar forms come from very similar places. One of the practical examples that I was talking with Aaron about of degeneracy in the system is I've got a situation in my work right now where I've got a team that we have a system and it's been in place for a while, but it's buggy. And then we had a bunch of critical kind of issues come up and we needed to really solve the problem. And so the whole team had to put aside what they were doing and start digging into this system that at the top like looked really nice, but had data quality issues. And so they dig in hard and it turns out like it's intractably difficult. Like the way the system was designed, even the person who originally wrote it, who's still on the team, is like, oh yeah, like this is incredibly hard to reason about. And they couldn't figure out how to like usefully evolve the system. I was like, what's the smallest set of changes we can make to stabilize the system? And it turned out like after a week of everybody digging into it, they were uh, super smart people. They were like, man, like we can't change anything without breaking everything. It's that kind of system. And so we had to look outside the system and think, okay, what are some things we can do to temporarily solve the problem, which led to some completely different ways that we might design that system. We found some ideas that we couldn't implement in that system, but we could potentially make a new system based off of that would be more robust. But then I saw that we've got another team who I realized had actually solved in their stuff about 80% of the problem we needed. Plus, it had some great things about it, like this is an ETL system grabbing a bunch of data, transforming it, putting it into a data warehouse, and then the front-end apps. They had a bunch of nice things in there, like exponential backoff when working with APIs and things like that our original system didn't have. And so now I've got these options, like do I want to rebuild with the same team a new system based off of these ideas we were forced to figure out, or do I want to move the work over to this other team and have them add the 20% that it would now need to do in order to solve the problem and get for free these other things that we had never even like originally designed into the system. Now, one of these teams is working in Ruby. One of them's working in Python. They share no common code. Like they share no libraries with one another. The teams are in different continents, but 
I am able to now make the decision to shift the work and add on the 20% here to get end up with a more robust solution instead of having to rewrite the entire system that was done in this you know one language. And so that's a benefit I get. Yes, but Judah, I want to challenge that. Isn't that exactly okay. the problem? Lazy evolution, piggybacking off of other systems? Wouldn't this model encourage you to say no? Instead of thinking that your work is 20% and the risk of inheriting whatever you guys further down the line realize isn't quite a match, wouldn't evolution in the context we're discussing encourage you to say, no, even though that system exists, we're going to create our own and then rather reap the benefits of two brain trusts having solved the same problem and one a little Mm, further than the other? No, very much the opposite of that. So the natural inclination and the correct inclination would be to try and introduce variation in the system that has been performing this function. And that's what we were trying to do. Originally trying, it's like, okay, here's a system that currently performs this job. And and so we're going to try to introduce variation to better solve this problem. Because like we've got a harder fitness test right now. Like it's just not cutting the mustard. It's not getting through the sieve. The system does not work the way we need it to. And so it turns out that the system incredibly hard to evolve. Like it just is essentially unevolvable in its current state. It is too tied to the current state of the world, to the fitness in a landscape. It's not evolvable. This other system, on the other hand, much easier to evolve. And so, yes, was it designed for this? It was not. But is it easy to iterate and change to meet the fitness need in the overall ecosystem? And the answer is yes. So it goes back to what Aaron was talking about, conservation of energy. How much energy do we need to put into the system? And Scott was talking about this too, getting out of a local minima or staying at a local maxima, which I didn't mention, but people can go look that up. If you think about curves and such and functions, the little dips are local minima, the tops are local maxima. And then overall in the system, you've got global maximum and minimum. It's like, how much energy does it take to move to a state that will survive through the sieve, through the fitness tests and such? And if we can evolve and modify a system that easily that will make it through, then that absolutely wins over trying to put a huge amount of energy to evolve a system that is essentially stuck in that local minima and such. And so thinking about the overall energy that you need to put into the system, like in nature, like if we were to let the systems completely evolve independently, yeah, that team would keep trying to evolve the system that they have and try and get it to go through the thing. But if we also left that problem up to the other team, if essentially you think about a ecological niche where you've got multiple members fighting to fill it and such, as the niche changes its attributes and such, if you allow equal access to essentially solving this problem, to occupying that niche, the one that requires the least energy to change the system to occupy the niche well and defend essentially that territory 
That's the winner. That's your fitness test. And so it's my job as a leader, even though I hate to tell this team, hey, we're taking this work away from you. We're shutting this system, part of the system down. They're still actually going to end up owning the API and the front end and such. It's the data acquisition piece that's broken. We don't actually have to change the front end to the application and the API to our data warehouse because the contract is the same. But this evolutionary niche of the data acquisition piece is much easier to like change this one system than it is to the other system. So that system wins because it's about solving the problem. I think, Etienne, the way I would describe that in degeneracy sense is, is so redundancy is identical structures producing the same outcome. Degeneracy is different structures producing the same outcome. I think Judah recognized- Or similar outcomes the presence of degeneracy. He had mm -hmm. two different structures, a Python-based system, a Ruby-based system, a team in one country, a team in another country, each producing similar outcomes and recognized that there was a mismatch where one of them, the, the fact that it was more evolvable, took less energy to operate and change, says, let's use this one in the other question. I think that what you might've been getting at, Etienne, which is kind of an open question for me, is do you throw away the old system then? What if there's some weird future scenario where the other, I don't know whether it was the Python or Ruby system you chose, but like maybe you went with the Python system and the Ruby system might be appropriate some other time. And I think this is a little bit of a silly question in the world of version control and things like that. Like you're never going to just delete it and completely forget it ever existed. But by shutting down the team, are you potentially removing some degeneracy that might be beneficial in the future. But this is where, like I mentioned earlier, like I'm interested in this adjacent possible thing. You have made a change now and you've said, hey, this team, you can now work on something else. You've moved to this adjacent possible space where they can now innovate on something else, which is probably beneficial for other reasons. But I don't have all the answers. I yeah. wish I had what Scott was looking for. And can we find a way to do this? Can we find the design patterns here? I don't have those answers. Well, I don't have the answers either, but I think that they can be found. I am way less interested in sort of mimicking the process of evolution. We were talking a minute ago, kind of like, oh, maybe having like competing teams that are producing alternate designs, and then we allow the customers to select them. I mean, the process that evolution uses to solve problems, as we mentioned earlier, is amazingly wasteful. And since it's blind, since it has no foresight, it's not an algorithm that's trying to optimize for like saving the most number of lives or like minimizing death, right? Or avoiding awful consequences. All it can do is adapt. All it can do is increase gene frequency. So I don't know that that's a great model for our teams because at the end of the day, we can't use the algorithms of evolution because evolution can do things that no human can ever do. Like when evolution is evaluating fitness, it's looking at every attribute of that system simultaneously from the shape of the electron clouds on the atom to chemistry. Like from the simplest view of that system at physics, all the way up to the size of the universe, evolution can look at all those things simultaneously. And that whole field from quarks to the size of the universe is the field that evolution has in order to 
make its quote unquote decisions. And as humans, we will never have like an area that size to work on. So I am very skeptical of the project of making our team sort of mimic evolution or like the process of evolution. Maybe that can be done at some certain level, but I'm like skeptical of it. What I'm not skeptical of is biomimicry. Human engineers make progress all the time by looking at the solutions that evolution has come up with, from airfoils to neural networks. We just do this all the time by like copying evolution's hard work that it's been doing for the past like 14 billion years, right? And I think that looking at that question of why God has an inordinate love of beetles is fertile ground. Why is it that this particular body plan, and I hate to use the word design, but like humans don't really have words that they use every day for what evolution does. What is it about the design of the beetle's body plan and its sort of evo-devo patterns? What about those things can we mimic to bring that adaptability into our software? That's the thing that I'm most interested in. And I think that that's the most fertile ground for this examination. And like how we can actually get benefit from these concepts is by copying the things we find in nature that make organisms adaptable, like duplicating body segments or having some kind of symmetry, bilateral symmetry, a radial symmetry. Those are all fertile ground for adaptation. And those are discrete attributes of the system that we can talk about and turn into design patterns. But what are they, right? You'd have to go out there and catalog them and then look at the evolutionary history of that creature and and see what they're good for. Much like we've taken neural networks, mimicking how neurons work, and we've, over a long period of time, figured out what they're good for. That's what I'm excited about, and I'm hoping that maybe Aaron will take a look at that in his his book, and that'll be maybe a chapter or two. I would love to read that. In other words, less about the mimicking this process of evolution and learning from the process, but more to look at what evolution has produced and then learn from that. Exactly. Evolution has arrived at certain patterns, like having duplicatable body segments that make those lines adaptable. It's created like structured possibilities for adaptation, but walk the fine line between being too complex and too over-adapted. And I think we should copy those things in our software. And so let me just quickly We do need to land the plane. That is so that a beetle can survive and procreate in a planetary system. Software is something we created a couple decades ago. I guess, should we not be looking at how that has evolved, nor what biology has done for life, and rather look at what has electric current done and evolved into for this process and for this ecosystem for applications and software to survive? I think we should do both, Etienne. Humans have made progress doing both things by like getting really good at mathematics and just sort of the human way of decomposing the world. We have come up with solutions that evolution maybe never could come up with. Very finely adapted solutions that maybe no conditions could ever produce such fine adaptation. On the other hand, the natural world has come up with solutions that I don't even think we could have gotten started unless we looked at nature. I don't think that anyone with a clean sheet of paper 
would have come up with like neural networks. But in the big bang of computer engineering, we're like in the first picosecond of the big bang. Mm -hmm. We're still in the thing. That's interesting. I don't feel great. Means you're a pioneer, Etienne. And like the kids and grandkids will eat our lunch, but like that's okay. That's what's supposed to happen. It's okay being a local maxima, not a global maxima, right? Like we're doing okay. Yes. I just feel like we have to move away from a stupid ass electric currents being on and off situation. That to me is seriously. And then we over optimize on top of that. And now we're creating abstract systems on top of that. Are you serious? That's how the natural world works, though. The bottom, it's just atoms moving around, and it's chemistry, and it's neurotransmitters, and it's That's my abstractions point, it's not, on top of abstractions. But we're not working with two states there. We're working with an infinite number, I guess, with binary, we also have infinite number of states, technically. But I think the key there, and that was just what was missing thing that Aaron just said, is that complex systems are not well-suited to reductionism. We end up with this linear thinking as designers, where we start from A and go to you know B. And that inherently has to reduce the complexity of uh, systems, because when we talk about these changeovers from like, it's like, oh, engineering is just applied physics, physics is in biology, and then like biology is just physics, chemistry, and then chemistry is just physics, and then physics is just math, right? But it's not like that. There are things that come about in these systems of complexity that are emergent phenomena that only happen at a certain scale that you cannot reduce down to parts. Things like, you know, thermodynamics and fluid dynamics. They're nonlinear systems. They're not reducible. They can only be categorized at a probabilistic behavioral level at a certain aggregate level. They're emergent phenomena in that. And we have to allow in our systems, if we want to have true diversity in our systems, both people and technological, because they have to, you know, mirror one another, we have to allow for that complexity to emerge and allow for these emergent phenomena, which means we have to have feedback loops that end up controlling that. some of that. Yeah. There has to be bottom-up generative organizations and software, and then feedback systems that help kind of cull and reduce some of the entropy. Otherwise, unless we allow for those emergent phenomena, we're never going to get true complexity. If you gentlemen agree, that is a great final statement. Nailed it. Nailed it. Jens, thank you. I do feel the warm and fuzzies for having been with you in this conversation, but I just feel so, I don't know if it's the nihilism rising in me, like why? Lost in the wilderness? Scott, should we hug or something? I think we should hug. There's always, like, any excuse is good for hugging as far as I'm concerned, right? But, yeah, you know, to me, it just boils down to we're already copying nature in a lot of ways. And that's a very familiar concept to software engineers. And there's more we can copy. Nature is just this infinite 
smart person whose desk is right mm. next to us, and we can always peek over and copy their work I a little that. bit. I love that. Listen, so I'm going to say goodbye. We should keep this conversation going because I feel like we're also building something. I would you guys feel you. good about that? You're on the record. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye.